0: It all seems like bad news. Elections, war, sickness, turmoil. A world at odds with itself. The headlines consume us. Every word pushes us further into anxiety. Every new notification a reminder of our human decay. It just makes you want to put the covers over your head and pretend the alarm never even went off, but it did. So wake up. Look beyond your dismal circumstances to Jesus In him, you will find hope and freedom. Newsflash, you are a royal priesthood. You have an inheritance. You have been adopted by a king, the king. Sure, you will be tested. You will be tried. You will feel as if a war is being waged on your soul. But you have been freed. Jesus freed you. And this freedom will cause you to live, love, and see better days ahead. That's good news. It's great news,
1: actually. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Forest Hill Church—one church, five, soon to be six campuses. It's great having all of you here today. As Jonathan mentioned, I have changed the First Peter series to a special message today because of what's been going on in our community. God's timing is perfect. When I was away this summer on my sabbatical, and the race riots began to break between African Americans and police, I became aware that I needed to do something. So came back in mid to late August and immediately had a panel up here with a couple of African-Americans to try to help us understand what it's like to be profiled but a couple of police officers as well to understand what it's like to be a first responder and all the responsibilities and pressures they have to deal with but then we said this is just the beginning of the conversation we're not going to be able to solve this issue the next conversation will be September the 28th little did we know at that time, that Charlotte would be embroiled in its own racial mess. So this next Wednesday night, a Cleveland Sellers and I will lead a seminar here at the South Park campus in the Karis Room. For any of you who want to come, hopefully it will be a rich diversity of people. We'll sit around tables and we'll try to help facilitate a conversation because we believe empathy is the pathway to progress. We really believe that empathy is the pathway to progress. And as we start talking and understanding each other's life situations, we will begin to be able to heal and to love one another better. Uh, This is Cleveland Sellers. He is an elder in Forest Hill Church. Uh, Cleveland is one of my bosses. He's one of 12 men and women who help oversee the life of this congregation. Uh, He is a very thoughtful individual, and I've asked him to come read the scripture and pray for us in just a moment. But before we do so, Cleveland, may I ask you this question? You said this to me this. Week and I've not forgotten it. One of the interesting phenomenon of the African American experience in America is your name. Your name is Cleveland Sellers. Talk about why that's such a strange experience for African Americans in America. Sure. So thank you for having me, and uh, look forward to the
2: discussion on Wednesday night. Um, as an African American, uh, we're proud uh, people, rich in culture and history, um, and also complexities. And part of those complexities we trace back to the African diaspora. And as uh, Africans were brought to this country as slaves, one of the first things that was done was um, the removal or taken of our names. Um, mm. And we took on the names of our, of our family slave owners. Um, so as I look back and try to trace family and, mm. and history and, and who we are, for me personally, I can't go, but. Uh, so far back in, in my history
1: um, to the slave owners that, that gave us our name. So, so sellers would come from your great-grandfather's slave owner. Right. And that's as far back as you can go. We on whites can go to legacy.com or ancestry.com and trace back four or five, 600 years, but you, you can't do that, can you? So your identity is really questioned in some ways because you don't know the deep rootage of your life. Sure, sure, absolutely. So that's one thing that he said to me that I went, gosh, empathy is the pathway to progress. I never knew that. I never thought of that. So as we dialogued, it helped me develop a deeper affection for my brother in Christ, who's a great man of God, by the way. He's going to read the scripture to you, some three that I chose for him to read and which uh, apply to the message I'm about to give you. So out of reverence for the reading of the scripture, if you're able, would you now please stand? This is the word of the Lord.
2: The Bible says in uh, Micah, the sixth chapter, verses six through eight, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the Bible says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And finally, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the Bible says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Would you pray for us now? God, we stand in front of you this morning in total surrenderance to you. Father, we believe that through only you and the power of your word will true change occur. So this morning, we ask that you mold our hearts, touch our hearts, and our minds, so as the Word comes forth, the divine power, the dunamis power of your Word comes forth, that it will change the hearts and minds of these, your people, so that we can leave this place changed men and women of God. So we thank you for what you're going to do in advance, we thank you that we are true change agents in this world as the body believers in the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's, his, and it's in his name that we pray. And all those that agreed said, amen. amen. Thank
1: you. Thank you, my dear friend. God bless you. You may be seated. So please bear with me. I'm not trying to make a statement in the next minutes about the police force nor prejudice among whites or anything like that. I'm just trying to help us understand um, I've spent 16 hours this week in a workshop which tries to help us understand institutional racism in America today. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to share with you what I learned. So what I'd like to do is to take you through 400 years of American history and help you understand like I have now understood from where a lot of racism occurs. Interestingly, the Human Genome Project which has just recently been completed, has discovered that 99.9% of all humans hold everything in common. 99.9%, more than any other animal, we are the same. So keep that in mind as we rush through 400 years of American history in just a few minutes. In 1607, the Jamestown Colony was formed in America. There's no evidence of any African slaves being a part of that community. Uh, 1609, John Rolfe, uh, one of those members, marries Pocahontas later to become Rebecca when she is baptized into the Christian faith. Uh, Whether John Rolfe and Pocahontas had a deep love relationship, I'll leave to Walt Disney. (laughs) Historians really don't know But what does seem certain is that John Rolfe was a very astute businessman, and he married Pocahontas knowing that because she was high up in the Powhatan Indian community, he would have access to being able to buy rich farmland along the James River, which he did from the Indians, and he became a very wealthy landowner. In 1619, there's the first evidence of Africans being brought to America by the Dutch as slaves or indentured servants. Uh, We see it as an entry into John Rolfe's diary, 20 Africans brought to America by the Dutch. Now, questions have been raised by historians through the years, uh, what's the difference between being a slave and an indentured servant? And reality-wise, there's probably not a whole lot of difference. Both groups have to be under a master and they have to perform work for them. Uh, So we don't know whether these 20 Africans were indentured servants or actual slaves, but they were under the authority of other people and sold to others here in America. Then we have in 1640 the John Punch incident. It is the first evidence of actual American slavery. John Punch was an African. He lived in Virginia. He, along with two whites, one Irish and one Dutch, ran away from their particular owner. They ran to Maryland where eventually they were discovered. They were brought back to Virginia. And interestingly, the Virginia legislator, and this is very important, for American law and the Constitution itself was mostly written by Virginia legislators. They had tremendous influence over American thought. The Virginia legislator gave four more years of indentured servanthood to the Dutchman, a white man, gave four more indentured years of indentured servanthood to the Irishman, a white man, but to John Punch, an African. He was made an indentured servant for the rest of his life. It is the first example of Africans being placed in a permanent position of slavery, an underclassed position, primarily for the purpose of serving to fuel an economic engine that was slowly but surely developing in American life. So the John Punch incident has extraordinary value in understanding the beginning of slavery in American life. Then we have in 1676 the Nathaniel Bacon incident. He leads a revolution in American life against what he deemed to be an increasing British kind of aristocracy. And moreover, in his rebellion, he wrote down, and we have the first incident of it, the complete extermination of a group of people called the American Indians. There wanted to be the elimination of them up and down the James River and other places in order to take their property, which was valuable, in order to continue to fuel and expand this growing American economic success. You'll see later us talking about the manifest destiny that our constitutional fathers thought God had given to our nation all the lands west of the Mississippi. Uh, including that which Mexico owned at that point, Texas, Nevada, New Mexico, even California. And some people felt like it was God's will that America owned all of that land throughout the entire North American continent, particularly to the Pacific Ocean. And in so doing, there had to be the elimination and ra- eradication of the Native Americans who owned that land. And here we have with... Nathaniel Bacon, the first recorded evidence that that was the desire of many white people in our nation. Then in 1680, we have the Virginia House. Notice it's the Virginia legislators who try to define what it means to be white. Because here's the dilemma. In America, there was a continually large mixed race population. Back to John Punch, he was married to a white woman who was a slave. And interestingly, Legacy.com has taken John Punch's wife and connected her through 13 generations to President Barack Obama. And we see the mixing of the races, not only black and white, but also with... Native American Indians. So with that mixture comes the problem of what does it mean to be white? So the Virginia house makes the first attempt to define what actually is a white person. But the dilemma is those who had power were wealthy white landowners. And it became clear in the research that Pocahontas and John Rolfe's descendants were of a mixed race. So you couldn't make The elimination of Indian blood as a part of a pure white race because a lot of those folks were wealthy landowners. So the definition was put off for a while until 1691 when the definition was finally constructed. It's the first time ever we have written down on paper what is the white race by, again, Virginia legislators. And you have here the first evidence of a sense of white supremacy in America a definition of a white race that does not include other people of mixed blood, and they are considered second-class citizens, particularly those who are from Africa. Then in 1789, you have the writing of our Constitution. And after some 70 years of racism and the denigration of Africans and placing them in a position of inferiority, our founding fathers had an opportunity with the Constitution to clearly state that all people are created equally. It was a chance to birth our nation without this ugly birth defect that's carried over for almost 400 years, but they wouldn't do so. And a lot of historians have suggested that was primarily because of racism in the South and slaves that existed in the South. But nothing could be farther from the truth. It's because of racism that existed throughout all of America. Yes, in the South, for those of you who've been to Charleston, South Carolina, you've been to that place in the center of the city where the slave trade happened. And it causes all of us to gasp with a sigh of pain when we walk there. But the major place those slaves were brought in was Sullivan's Island, beautiful Sullivan's Island where some of us go on vacation. That was the major import of Africans into the South, along with Wilmington, North Carolina. So yes, slavery was embedded in the Southern expansion of economic credibility, but the major place where it really happened was in the North. And the three major ports into which Africans came into America Were Providence, Rhode Island, Hartford, Connecticut, and New York City, New York. And again, slavery was embedded in the North and the South, and it was such an important part of the economic expansion of our nation. Our constitutional writers, our forefathers, refused to make a clear statement in the Constitution that all people are created equally before God. As a result, our nation was born with a birth defect. And slavery was a part of our American life with the Constitution, which leads to 1790. In that time period, during the Renaissance, the Renaissance basically emphasized science above all else. The Renaissance emphasized reason. If you could figure something out by reason, by fact, it was considered to be terribly important. So enters the scene a social scientist by the name of Blumenbach and he does a study of the human race to try to understand why folks are so different. And he came up with four divisions of the human race called the OIDS theory, O-I-D-S theory. First of all, there are the Caucasoids. They are the white race, people who come from the Caucasus Mountains. Secondly, there are the Mongoloids who come from the Mongolia area who have a more Asian appearance. Thirdly, there are the Austroids who come from Australia, which defines the aborigine kind of people, but also the folks who lived there. And the fourth group of people are called the Negroids. Notice that the other three divisions of people have a place from where they come, whether it's the Caucasus Mountains or Mongolia or Australia. The Negroids aren't defined by a place from where they come. They don't come from a place. They're defined simply by a color. And by doing so, this social scientist allows a group of people not to have a place from where they come, which means they're not persons. If you are a person, you have a place from where you come. But if you don't have a place from where you come, you are not as important as everybody else. Thus, Blumenbach's theories were adopted by our constitutional fathers to give them the right to place a group of people who are black in a category of subservience and second-class citizenry. And therefore, they can be used in this second-class perspective as a cheap labor force to grow the American economic engine, which by the time of the writing of the Constitution in 1789 is continuing to grow and grow and grow. Interestingly, too, in 1791, the only people in all of the colonial states that were allowed to vote were rich, wealthy, white landowners. Now, those of you who are women, you didn't get the right to vote in your suffrage movement until the 1920s. Those who voted were rich, wealthy, white males. You can only imagine. They voted to keep power. They made laws that allowed this ugly system of second-class citizenry to exist. Then from 1790 to 1861, you have the continued growing of this economic engine with this cheap labor force of slavery. And it's growing to become one of the largest in all of the world, one of the wealthiest in all the world. So again, those who are making the laws want to keep everything intact so that wealth can continue to occur. And you also have manifest destiny, the pushing of America westward, and the continued extermination of people, who need to be exterminated for wealth to grow in America today. Of course, then in 1861, you have the American Civil War. And some people argue that wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, which is true. The primary reason the American Civil War took place was because of states' rights. But what were the states rightly arguing about? Their right to allow slavery to exist. So the Civil War fought by hundreds of thousands of men mostly, but some women, with the deaths of hundreds upon thousands of men and some women was fought over the issue of slavery. And when the North finally won, you have the 13th Amendment in 1865. What does the 13th Amendment say? It abolishes slavery and all involuntary servitude except in case of a crime. So you have with the 13th Amendment the hopeful beginning of Reconstruction. uh, The first step in the civil Rights Act, which was finalized in 1964, where there was an attempt by the Union to rebuild the South and allow equality among all people, Africans and whites and Indians, all the same, all given the right to vote, all given the right before God and the law. Uh, the, The problem was, as years passed by and Reconstruction made some advancements, and it did make some advancements, Africans began to go to universities, their families remained intact, and they began to succeed at some level. But over time, the union forces that oversaw the laws in the South began to withdraw. And folks, there is no law nor military presence that can change the human heart. It can't do it. So racism still existed within many people in the South. And when they looked at the 13th Amendment, they said, okay, slavery is abolished and involuntary servitude is abolished except in case of a crime. So laws, Jim Crow laws started to be written in order to keep blacks down. Laws like you can't laugh in front of a white woman. You can't look a white woman in the eye. You can't flirt with her in any way. If you're walking on the sidewalk and a white person comes, you've got to step off on the curb. You can't eat where white people eat. You can't drink from their drinking fountains. And any black that broke those laws, especially in Jim Crow southern states, they were arrested and put in jail. Thus, another way to keep them down and use them mostly in positions of inferiority and subservience so that the economic American engine can continue to grow. And that's what happened in Reconstruction America. Interestingly, for those of you who love to go to Wilmington, North Carolina, it's one of the most horrific historical statements in American public life. For blacks started to prosper in Wilmington. They started taking in positions of power, and they started to grow in their community. And whites didn't like it one bit. So after some period of time, lynching started happening. You even have stories of Black heads placed on poles along the highways of Wilmington to discourage any African-Americans from trying to rise up. And they were put in their place and whites dominated and became powerful again. So Reconstruction had its positives, it also had its negatives as we're trying to lurch forward as a nation with equality for all. Now you ask for a second, why are African-Americans so angry? Why do these riots keep happening? I believe with all of my heart that we operate by 5% of our conscious behavior, by 5% of what we realize and what we think we do. 95% is subconscious. And we have so many things informing us regarding how we feel and how we think. And especially in the African-American community over the last 50 years as more and more of these facts have been unearthed and they know them. They've got this bubbling malaise in their hearts. And when they get a chance, their anger just shoots forth because they say, this just isn't fair, all that's happened in our national history. Did you know in 1865 when Sherman marched through the South, he promised every African-American slave after the war had been won, 40 acres and a mule. The truth is the African-American community couldn't have been happier. You give them 40 acres and a mule, they got a chance at life. But then over just a short period of time after that land had already been given to Africans, after the mule had already been given to them, legislators in the South rescinded that promise from Sherman and they took the land and gave it back to white people. Again, just think about how how that causes this anger and malaise in the hearts of people in our nation. From 1865 to the 1920s, you have some advancement through reconstruction and you also have continued segregation. And also the economic American engine is growing larger and larger and more and more people are experiencing some wealth except this labor force among blacks that continues to get pushed down over and over again. In 1929, you have the stock market crash and Herbert Hoover is our president, and he thinks just leave it alone. It will eventually correct itself, but after three years, it had not corrected itself. My daddy lived through the Depression. He would tell me horrific stories of all his family had to go through some evenings just having to drink warm water as a family to try to assuage all the stomach pain they felt inside. So in 1932, to overcome Hoover's disastrous oversight of the Depression... Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president of the United States, and he came up in 1933 with the beginning of the New Deal. It was a public works program to try to put to work Americans to generate economy again in our land. Now, before you see the public works projects taking place in 1935, you have in 1934 a significant moment in American history, especially depriving African-Americans of some of their rights in our nation. It was the National Housing Act and redlining beginning. The National Housing Act was a purposeful, intentional decision by FDR and his administration to try to help rapidly suburbanize America. So there were billions of dollars put into different suburbanal areas all around America in order for houses to be built, people to be given hope, and also a workforce beginning to work again. But here's the problem. Among those billions of dollars through this act, redlining occurred. That was the government intentionally circling African-American communities with a red line. This was just uncovered several decades ago. It's a practice that's still gone on close to today. With the government saying, our dollars will not go to those communities that have been redlined. And all of those communities were African American. The money didn't go there, they went to white suburban areas. And then with all the public works projects in 1935, you had things like the Hoover Dam that was built. That took 20,000 people to build. It gave them a job, gave them money. Praise God, very few of those workers were African American. They just weren't given those opportunities to work. And for example, in the continued suburbanization through the National Housing Act, you had swimming pools that were built. But those swimming pools were built in white communities. They weren't built in African-American communities. So some of you today just recently watched the Olympics, and you all know I have a a swimming son, and you ask the question, why aren't there more African-Americans who are great swimmers today? And you come up with things like, oh, they're not as buoyant as white people. Dear friends, that's nonsense. That's stupidity. They're every bit as buoyant as we are. What's the deal? With the New Deal, They didn't have swimming pools built in their communities. They didn't have access to swimming pools. So as you've seen more and more of that happen, you have Cullen Jones, for example, an African-American from the state of North Carolina who won a gold in the 2012 games. You had Simone Manuel, a wonderful, beautiful Christian woman who won a gold medal in the Rio games. And you're going to see more and more of it as African-Americans have access to pools. But it goes back to the public works projects begun in 1935. Again, 80% of all of the monies in those public works projects went to suburban white places. Then in 1944, you have the GI Bill. Um, This was to try to help soldiers returning from World War II get back into American life. Now, interestingly, initially, African-American men weren't considered to be good soldiers, so they weren't as included in World War II. Then something happened. We needed more and more pilots in order to bomb Germany. And as they were needed, there were a group of people from Tuskegee, the Tuskegee Airmen. And if you've not seen the movie Red Tails, it's worth seeing. And they suddenly are given planes and they start flying and they're successful. And people suddenly realize African Americans are as smart as whites and they can fly planes and they can be successful bombardiers. And so they're not only invited into the public sphere of flying, they're invited into actual warfare and they're very successful. Tens of hundreds of thousands of them. But by the way, when they're in Europe, where they don't have the systemic racial history of America, they're walking down sidewalks and they think they've got to step off like the laws in America say, but the people there don't want them to step off. In fact, they're hugging them on the sidewalk and kissing them and saying, thank you for being here. We so appreciate your presence and they go into cafes, and unlike America, where they've got to take their food and go outside to eat it, they're brought to the bar, they're bought drinks, their food's bought for them, they eat at the bar with everybody singing, praise God you're here. And then they come back to America, where they've still got to step off the sidewalk, and they still can't look a white woman in the eye, where the women in Europe are flirting with them, And here they can't have equality in any way. And they're going, do you you understand the anger that some of them feel? And then moreover, the GI Bill's purpose was to give all soldiers a chance at a quality education. And, And so the white soldiers took advantage of the GI Bill and could go anywhere they wanted to go. Even if they chose Duke, they could go to Duke if they wanted to. And and some of them chose North Carolina, and Ivy League colleges were available to them, Columbia, Yale, Harvard, all of those schools were available, but for African soldiers who came back, they could only go to HBCs. Now, if you don't know what an HBC is, you need to know historically black college. They couldn't use their GI money to go to these more upper-crust schools. So The white soldiers graduate in 1940s and 50s being lawyers, doctors, very successful entrepreneurs, and they start amassing wealth. The African-American soldiers going to HBCs can't get the same jobs. And a lot of them can't get anything more than being a janitor. They can't start amassing the wealth that America is amassing as the years go by. What's interesting is is my dad's generation was called The Greatest Generation by Tom Brokaw. And my dad's generation passed on to their children $12 trillion worth of capital. Us boomers, in the next years, we're going to pass on $30 to $40 trillion worth of wealth to our children. And African Americans don't have that accessibility to wealth. They can't pass it on, not only because they couldn't get the right jobs, but also because of suburbanization. You see, when the African-American soldiers and their families started moving into those suburban areas built through the New Deal, We had blockbusters, whites, who would go to the whites in those areas and say, oh, man, if they move in here, your property values are going to plummet. So tell you what, I'll give you in cash just a little bit less than what you paid for, and then you go to another suburb. You can then build your wealth, and you won't have to worry about plummeting property values, and that's what happened. It's called white flight. And whites left and went to their suburban areas where they could all build property value. And meanwhile, all the African Americans had to move into other communities that weren't white at all. And the property values went down and they could not build up capital. You wonder why there's some anger? Why there's some stuff inside that just doesn't feel right to them? And that's what happened. They don't have the money that they're going to be able to pass on to their children like those of us have who were given privilege. You may not like the term white privilege, but it's there. In the fact we whites don't even think about it, that should help us realize it's there. Then in 1946, there was the Hill-Barton Act, which tried to reconstruct hospitals all throughout the nation. Uh, Not only construct, but reconstruct ones that were there. None of that money went to the construction or reconstruction of black hospitals. Many of them went demised and in disrepair and ultimately were closed. In 1954, you had Brown versus Board of Education. Finally, finally, the American legal system and the Supreme Court said separate but equal is illegal, as it should have been that all of God's children, black and white, should have access to the same quality education. Again, that law was passed in 1954. Now move ahead to the early 1970s in Greensboro, North Carolina, as just one example. In the early 1970s was when the public schools in Greensboro were finally integrated. That was almost 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Now, Now think about this. Last year, the Obergefell decision was made regarding gay marriage. And whatever you think about that, I think most of you know what I think about that. But whatever you may think about that, can you imagine in 2030, for example, there are still cities and states all around America that have refused to enact it as law? There were 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education that integration still had not taken place in many cities and states in America. And you ask yourself the question, why is there this bubbling anger that seems to be in the hearts of so many African Americans? You have then the Civil Rights Act in 1964, probably completing Reconstruction and what was meant. Then in 1968, you have the Chicago, Detroit, and Los Angeles race riots, much worse than today today. For those of us who lived through those months much worse than today, much more violence, much more destruction, and I will comment on this. Anytime there's destruction, it's not God's will. But it happened in 68, and a tough-talking politician came to the fore saying, I'm going to cause law and order to be rightly enacted. His name was Richard Nixon, and he won primarily in 68 on a law and order platform. He also left office in 73 in disgrace. So be aware of any politician who's going to tough talk in this election about law and order. In 1970 to 2000, you have the greatest wealth growth ever in our history and the greatest wealth transfer beginning, as I just alluded to it. And then in 2008, you have an amazing phenomenon in American historical life, the election of our first African-American president. I think many of us knew this history and looked at that as a moment of Whew. Now we live in a post racial America. And if any of you thought that, nothing could have been further from the truth. Even though it was symbolically a huge step forward, it did not solve our ills, nor did it address 400 years of institutional racism. And here we are in 2016. We have a shrinking middle class, a growing wealth gap between the rich and the poor. You have 19 plus trillion dollars worth of debt, and for the life of me, I don't know why that's not the major and perhaps even only question Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton will address tomorrow night. Because if that debt load continues, you won't have prosperity happening at all, and the middle class will shrink more and more and more, and this anger that people feel now, including more and more whites, is going to grow. Some of you are frustrated with me right now. Let let me give you an illustration that might help you. This has been an actual study. The game of Monopoly was brought into a room, and African-Americans were allowed to start playing. And they rolled the dice and moved around the properties and bought most all of the major properties, put their hotels on them. And then two hours into the game, whites were invited to start playing. And they got so frustrated because they couldn't get anything. It had already been taken. That the decision they finally made was hopefully on their roll of the dice to go to jail. So they wouldn't have to play. You wonder why there's this anger? It's partially because of that. Not all of it's justified. And when there's the destruction of property, it's unjustifiable. But there is a rage an anger, a bubbling malaise that's in the hearts of some African-Americans and folks we need as whites to understand it because empathy is the key to progress. And they need to understand some of our feelings too. And that's why we're doing what we're doing Wednesday night, to hopefully begin a dialogue because so many of you, myself included, I'm a doer, give me a task, I'll get it done. I ask the question, again, like many of you, what can I do to help address this bubbling racism in our society? And I've concluded that before I do anything, I should do these things. First of all, I need to pray for truth, justice, empathy, and mercy. I pray that the truth will come out with these videos and interviews with witnesses because the truth will set you free. And I pray for justice and equality in our land. I pray for mercy to understand what other people are going through. Secondly, come Wednesday night, come learn, come grow, come pray. Before we can do anything, we need to become aware of what's going on. Third, please understand, I know the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I had Cleveland read Galatians 3.28, Galatians 3.28, In the church, the gospel should allow all of us to realize we're not male or female or Jew or Greek or slave or free or black or white. We are one in Christ. The hope of the world is the gospel through the local church, and I believe that with every ounce of my being. But fourth, for the church to be faithful, we need to also practice what Cleveland read from Micah 6. We need to do justice. Did you know Charlotte lacks is number 50 out of the 50 largest cities in upward mobility. And those who can't move out of their poverty into upward mobility are mostly African Americans in our community. So somehow the church of Jesus Christ needs to be on the forefront of helping to figure out how to give them chances to move upward and be able to be a part of the continuing, growing American experience. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. I have one voice and some influence, and I promise you until I have no breath left in these lungs to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to attack every sin, racism included, to help bring together a church that's multi-ethnic and multi-racial. It's getting there, but, man, it's like turning the Titanic. And I ask you who are different maybe to come and help us do it better And then finally, to work hard for justice and to help people who want to move up the economic ladder to be able to do so for the glory of our God who has revealed his perfect love to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name I live and move and have my being. God bless you all.